religiously, philosophically, in TV shows and books, we're constantly asking this question, do people change? One way of tweaking this to get around it is, uh, do people change or do they become more of who they really are? And one of the challenges with the New Testament is it, 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 it doesn't answer the question as directly or as specifically as some of us would like because it blows right past it and assumes that not only people ch can change, but they do. I wonder, as I get a little older, whether it's more challenging, just humanly speaking, leaving religion aside, whether it's more challenging to stay the same as we get older and learn more about relationships and God and ourselves, or to change. You can email me about that if you have an opinion. But not only do I wonder what all, what all is required for a human to change, I wonder if it's as possible as we long for it to be. And then I wonder whether it's that much harder over 20 years to stay the same as culture changes and we learn more about relationships, and especially for us, I hope, about the promises of God. I got so many interesting comments about the title of this sermon that dated all of us on the tech team and those that are praying. Some thought it was a, a historical anecdote. One thought it was um, based upon a, what movie? No, I, that's what I, that's me. That's my first James Bond movie. Never say never again. But, it, yeah, American Tale. And I was like, wow. Here, here's where the title comes from. I know... I actually know that I don't have enough influence in your life to convince you to resist even strongly using a specific word. And yet, this has been my favorite thing to do from a sermon standpoint. Um, last year, I preached on the word just. Not justice, but the adverb, as Urban Dictionary describes it, as the, the little word that creeps in in all kinds of places where it doesn't belong an easy way of trivializing something without having to justify the trivialization and often without the hearer realizing it, right? I just want you to, meaning I really want you to, but I'm pretending like I only kind of want you to. And the worst place it pump, pops up is when we say, Lord, we just want, because we're not supposed to pray that way. We are to pray boldly, not passive-aggressively. And yet I do it. So I know that I don't have the influence to get you to remove the word just as an adverb from your prayers because I can't even get them removed from mine. But I do pay attention and then it annoys me when I do it. Two years ago, I preached on the word normal because I think what we do with the word normal, especially in our own heads, but often out loud, is we judge ourselves and other people, right? Do you realize this? A normal person wouldn't have gotten so flustered with their boss. A normal person wouldn't have taken that email personally. A normal person wouldn't be so upset about the dishes. Or they would have, right? A normal person would have been more upset about the dishes. I got an email from Peter Waltz after that sermon. He said, we do want our body temperature to be normal. <laughs> and this week, we're going to talk about the word never and how it sneaks in and disrupts our maturing as a lover of God and neighbor. And I know what's going on right now in your mind. You're becoming increasingly aware of something, and I want you to know it's true. I have the spiritual gift of overthinking. <laughs> it serves me well all the time. And 
a number of our leaders have learned how to say to me, I think you might be overthinking this. And it's one of those things that I'm actually not terribly defensive about. I'm sure you could all get me there if you as a group decided to tell me all the time. But I overthink things. And what I mean by that is when I'm listening to you and we're talking in my study or here in church or when we're in a group trying to accomplish something with the church or I just hear about conversations in passing, I hear these little words that disrupt our relationships. I remember a couple of years ago hearing a sermon and uh, the pastor said, you know that you're ready to confront someone you're in a conflict with when you stop having an imaginary conversation with them in your head. And I was like, well, there are going to be some people I'm never going to be ready to confront. And what I realized when he gave that application was not only how much stuff there is inside of me relationally that's at least semi-functional, if not dysfunctional. But what's happening is my beliefs about God and his promises collides with my story. And the way that I see that collision oftentimes are in these little words where we judge ourselves and neighbor and neighbor love gets disrupted. Do you know about all the agreements that you've made over the course of your life? One of my good friends uh, at church in St. Louis, she had graduated from high school maybe a couple years, maybe three. I'm actually not sure how long she had been out of high school. And she saw her old English teacher. And she saw a bulge. And she ran to her and was like, congratulations! You know what's about to happen, right? (laughs) She wasn't pregnant. And this is one of the most composed people I know, and I think maybe part of the reason that she's so composed now are things like that that happened. And I guarantee you, she made an agreement. I will never ask someone if they're pregnant again, and I'll never celebrate a pregnancy I don't know about with photographic evidence. And that's a funny example, I hope, and most of us have have probably put our foot in our mouth that way, except some of it, well, anyway. We make other kinds of agreements, though, right, about trust. At some point in our life, trust was broken, and it's, it's subconscious for most of us, except the most that some of us are incredibly self-aware and we realize we're doing it, but for most of us, it's subconscious, where we trusted someone and they hurt us, and we made some kind of an agreement that we're either going to hesitate before trusting again or we're not going to trust again. The second men's retreat I ever led I talked for just a few minutes to the men and I encouraged them to go out and, and, and talk with the Lord for a few minutes and ask him if he's proud of them. And the first man that stood up with me, they were all sitting in this living room retreat house that we were in, and he said, I swore I would never ask anyone that again. Are you aware of the agreements that you've made? And listen, you came by them honestly. You didn't make agreements because you're like, you know what would really hinder my joy? <laughs> Is that I would just make some agreements. You know, when, when that person abandoned our friendship, it didn't hurt that much. Like, you, you come by your agreements and your pain honestly. And the pain you've caused others. You've decided, I'm not going to do that again because look at the pain I caused, even though that wasn't my intent, or it was, out of fatigue or anger or your own story speaking into the moment. You come by your agreements honestly, and yet through them we judge ourselves 
and rob our, our senses of the joy that Christ purchased for us, and we judge others. So our words reveal belief through which we judge ourselves. So we don't say never about the obvious things. You realize that. Like, we're like, I would never build a bomb. Like, we don't have to say that because it's obvious. I would never participate in gang violence. Like, it's, you know, it's clear. I would never commit brigandage. It's a very obscure 19th century horrific practice that some of you wordsmiths know about. We don't say never about the truly obvious things. What we actually say never about are the things we long to be obvious to us in the way we talk to ourselves, in the way we talk to others, and relate to them, especially in close relationships. And yet, the time that it comes up most easily are in public or as we're watching celebrities or in traffic, right? I would never tail someone this closely unless that's your thing. But some, for some of us, that's when we say never. I would never lose my temper with my kid in Walmart. When we see a celebrity couple blow, I would, I would never do that. And what's happening is we're revealing to ourselves, hopefully, agreements that we've made about love and about relationships and about trust. And we're even expressing desires to be loved in a fashion. And we're doing this to run from pain. We're doing this because of the places that we're stuck. You know, if something really traumatic happens to you without a significant amount of healing, part of your being is stuck at that age. You know that? I mean, this is, I mean I'm not going to try and land this plane psychologically. I have exactly five hours of graduate training in psychology. But... When I sit with people and they tell me about something really challenging that happened, first of all, they're asking me if it was a big deal, and most of the time it is, regardless of what the culture says. Also, they're stuck in that moment. There are times that I'm with my parents, and my two children are there, and my wife is there, and I'm 15 in my ability to make a decision. And so what we do to get out of that, I don't want to be stuck. I don't want to feel 15 anymore, or 12, or 8, or 26, or whatever. We run the opposite way. How many of you have ever had this instinct, I am going to be the opposite of that? And I don't know if you named it, but when you were harmed, you made an agreement in your head, when I get to this point, when my kid's five, like I'm five now, and you realized it when you were 15, but the memory is from when you were five, when my kid's five, I'm not going to discipline that way. And maybe that's good, but what's going on semi-consciously is I'm going to do the opposite. Again, I don't know, I, I doubt I have the influence to really convince you of this, but I need to try. You are not the opposite of another human being. That is not your calling. That's not your role. That's not who God designed you to be. You are you. You have a specific and beautiful calling as a daughter or a son of the true king because you're reconciled because of the work of Christ and you have a role in this spiritual family or in your other, if you're visiting in, in the one that you attend otherwise, in your family of origin, challenging though it may be, and that role might be boundary, it might not, that's a complex conversation for obviously next New Year's sermon. <laughs> Thank you. You are not the opposite of someone else. As you think about relating to your spouse, don't do it the opposite of how you saw your parents do it. Now, for some of you in intact families, it's harder to recognize the agreements because the dysfunction in an intact family is, is harder to see. And yet, your parents are imperfect people, right? 
they're made in the image of God, but they sinned against you. And they sinned against other people in front of you, and that bothered you. And it's harder to label in an intact family than in a, in a, uh, a broken family. And yet there are still agreements. So in an intact family, we make an agreement that we're going to do it like our parents without even realizing we're doing it, but our spouse is not our mom or dad. So the reason that we make these agreements is because of fear and pain. We make these agreements because we feel stuck and we think humanly the way to get unstuck is to just do the opposite. And I think the way that we learn the agreements that we've made are the nevers that pop into our mind. Because some of you say it out loud, very loudly, very aggressively. And some of you say it with your eyes. I'm an I-never-sayer. So when someone in my family ticks me off, especially in a way that I'm actually pretty good at, like whatever it is in the house, I just say never like this. Some of you are like, how come no one in this house ever does the dishes? You're more of a sayer of the never. And what's happening is you're actually expressing a good desire for love, but you're saying it in a binary way that blocks that person's ability to love you. So we not only judge ourselves through the nevers, we judge others. And listen, there are two kinds of judgment. You know this instinctively. And if you study the New Testament, the word judgment comes up about 15 times and the New Testament alternates between the two kinds. So one kind of judgment is that seemed wise or that seemed foolish. If you see someone run a red light and they crash into someone, that was foolish of them to run that red light. It caused them harm and we judge. Wow, that was a mistake. But the ugly judgment, perhaps the ugliest thing that humans do in their mind, especially if there's a religious twist, is judge someone as less than human because of whatever we see. Judging them ontologically. Judging them as not made in the image of Christ. And it's, it's so subtle when we do it. We don't say it that way. I'm judging you as a human. You are less than human, ma'am or sir. But in our disproportionate emotions, that's what's happening. It's ugly. And when we say never, we take a statement from the perhaps healthy kind of judgment and move it into the unhealthy kind. And everyone in this room, I think, has enough close relationships. I'm, I'm certainly talking about marriage, but I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm also talking about friendship and parent-child relationships, sibling relationships, and close friends. One of you probably says never statements, and the other one probably hears them and maybe is the I never sayer like me. I would never do that. I just say it with my eyes. A never statement is far better than nothing. For those of you that are in relationship with someone and they speak with you aggressively that way and you're like, what am I supposed to do with a never statement? Because there's no option. That's the problem with it. I hope I would never. There's some options. There's some conversation that can happen. But you never, like the only thing you can do is fix yourself forever about the dishes, right? What's worse 
then that kind of aggressive communication is nothing. Because that means that your brother or your sister or your spouse or your parent or your child has given up asking you to love them well. Indifference is much, 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 much worse than anger. Now, I get it. If the never statement comes with a plate flying across the room, that's scary. And yet, it's still an invitation to relate differently. Not a good invitation. Not a wise or healthy invitation. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul describes this. After talking about the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh, he says this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We have this tendency, and the never statements, be they silent or said in code language or said directly, reveal this tendency that we have that blocks neighbor love. The tendency is to look up at people as though they're a better human than you, or look down at them as though they're a worse human than you. And what Paul is describing at the end of chapter 5 of Galatians is that the gospel of Jesus frees us from that tendency into neighbor love. Do you see it? Let us not become conceited, envying one another, provoking one another. And I know that there are times that someone seems smarter than you, and you want to envy them and believe that you're a worse human than them, and yet that's not the truth. First of all, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of kinds of intelligence. Second of all, you're made in the image of God. No more or less than any other human, even that one that never remembers to put the dishes away. And you know why that gets said in my house is because my wife does everything for the family except the cat litter. We do the cat litter, me and the girls. But most of the rest of the responsibilities of the house end up falling on her. We support. And so occasionally she'll say something like that. And if I'm having a healthy, if I'm, I don't know, had my coffee, and I hear her say, how come no one in this house knows where things go? I realize it's an invitation to love and to intimacy. And then there are the bad days where I just look at her. And it goes, it, yeah, you know how it goes. That's why you're laughing. I think you hear those statements in your mind all the time. I think you sometimes say them out loud about celebrities, about parents in Walmart, about friends that you've heard about or spouses that you've heard about or your own spouse or your own parent. And I think those statements block neighbor love. And they block what we really want, which is to ask those who God has put into our lives to love us well. And that is a risky ask. The agreements that you've made about trust, about love, about words, about hands, about relationships, those agreements, you've come by them honestly. You hurt someone, and the pain it caused you to cause pain led you to make an agreement, I'll never do that again. You have been hurt. Trust was violated in your life. 
And so you're like, well, I'm only going to get this far into relationships from now on because I don't want to be hurt. You come by the pain of your agreements honestly. And the gospel of Jesus frees you, and here's how it frees you. The dominant need you have in your life and being is to be grasped by the love of God, secured by the work of Christ and given by the Holy Spirit. As we are grasped by that, then we can wisely move back into relationships. And by wisely, I mean it might not yet be time. But, regardless of whether it's time, we must understand that the gospel frees us into those relationships, into breaking those agreements about love and trust and words by fulfilling our deepest need, which is to know that we're known by, loved by, liked by, found by God. What we do naturally because of the sin, a sin and because of the curse is we build these prisons of agreements around ourselves, and we do so because of fear too. And listen to me very carefully. Your fears are not silly. They're not the very best horror movies and novels, in my opinion, have nothing supernatural in them. Just people hurting each other. And whether you've been hurt or you're just afraid of being hurt, it's legitimate. And the gospel doesn't free you from that fear. It frees you from the power of that fear by giving peace to your heart and then equipping you through the Holy Spirit and through community with wisdom and knowing how to move back into relationships. Every never statement that your brother or your child or your parent or your spouse makes is an invitation to relationship. At the same time, my hope in thinking about this sermon literally all year, not working on it. You know, I work on sermons about 10 or 12 hours a week. I'm positive that's too long or too short. You can let me know. My hope is that we're a little more thoughtful about the internal language that we use and the external language that we use. Because the gospel is maturing us and it is freeing us and we can lean into it by noticing the collision of our stories and our agreements and the gospel of Jesus that calls us to live and to love in light of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we can do that is although every human in your life that has had more than a few weeks in your life has forsaken you in some way, they have. That's why your agreements and your fear are not weird or illegitimate. I mean, they might be weird, but you came by them honestly. But Jesus of Nazareth, who lived a perfect life that we could not, died the death that we deserve because of sin, then rose from the dead, which frees us into the peace of God and then into wise relationship with neighbor, where perhaps... We resist thinking or saying never to them or to ourselves. Would you pray with me?
Holy Spirit, inasmuch as you are in this sermon and worship service, help us to breathe in the good news of your grace and peace and be able to take that good news into our relationships. And inasmuch as this sermon is over-affected by my story, Lord, remove it from our ears. The Lord Jesus, you said you came to give us life and life to the full. We trust your Holy Spirit is filling us even now with that joy and righteousness and peace. Help us to lean into that, first in love for you and then in love for neighbor. And Lord, as our fear presses in on us, remind us of your great grace in our lives. As our old stories make us nervous about relationships, free us into wise love. And Holy Spirit, as we contend with our past, would you help us to see how you are even in this moment healing us from our own mistakes and sins, from the wounds of others, and from the power of the curse and of fear. Lord, we believe that you have given us joy. We believe it is ours in the kingdom. Help us to sense that even as we sing about it to our own souls. Amen.